Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to Heritage Voices, episode 60. I'm Jessica Uquinto, and I'm your host. And today we are talking about historical archaeology for the future. Before we begin, I'd like to honor and acknowledge that the lands I'm recording on today are part of the Nuch, or Ute People's Treaty Lands, the Dineta, and the Ancestral Puebloan homeland. Today we have Dr. Ayana Omilade Fluellen on the show. Dr. Fluellen uses they, she pronouns. Ayana is a Black feminist, an archaeologist, a storyteller, and an artist. They're the co-founder of the Society of Black Archaeologists and sits on the board of Diving with a Purpose. Ayana is an assistant professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of California, Riverside. Her research and teaching interests are shaped by and speak to Black feminist theory, historical archaeology, maritime heritage conservation, public and community-engaged archaeology, processes of identity formations, and representations of slavery. They currently are the co-PI of the Estate Little Princess Archaeology Project, an award-winning collaborative community-engaged archaeological project based on the island of St. Croix, U.S. Virgin Islands. So welcome to the show, Ayana. Thank you so much for having me, Jessica. This is wonderful. Yes, I am very excited to have you on the show. Like I said, when we were talking beforehand, I have a very long list of (laughs) things that would be interesting to talk to, and I know we're not going to get to it all, but... Let's start with, how did you get interested in this work? Yeah. How did I get interested (laughs) in this work? Generally, when I answer this question, I always tend to go back to my childhood. And I grew up with a mother who was a single mom and didn't have a lot of disposable income to really put their child in sort of extracurricular activities and the like. But for a part of my childhood, I was in Tacoma Park, Maryland with my mother. And I have like very clear memories of her taking me down to the mall in Washington, D.C., where you can go in and out of all of the Smithsonian museums for free. And I have like memories of going into the American History Museum and spending hours in that museum and falling in love with museum spaces, but also just like with history and the stories that these institutions held within them. So when I was an undergraduate at the University of Florida and I was an exploratory major for the first two years, which literally means I was taking classes any and everywhere trying to figure out what sparked my interest, I came across a class on the archaeology of African-American life and history taught by James Davidson. And it clicked for me. I was just like, oh, wow, it would be amazing to be able to do work that sparked and brought about the stories that were held in these museums that I remember having so much joy visiting. So that was really what made it feel and seem possible. And I will say that James Davidson's class at the University of Florida 
was a course that squarely centered archaeological scholarship on racial politics and made the work political. Like that was what James taught at its core. And I think because of that, and like with the site itself that we worked on, the Kingsley Plantation, which is the first site that was excavated by Charles Fairbanks in the 19, late 1960s, where an archaeologist asks very specific questions about the life of enslaved Africans at a plantation site. So there's a way that like starting my career from that entryway allowed me to see myself being a person of African descent in this scholarship and also grounded this work that was so richly about the past to the present lived experiences of people of African descent and with the knowing that the work that we and the history that we uncover today shapes how we think of, conceive, and be as Black people in the future. So when you were in this this undergrad department and you discovered this class, was there a lot of other opportunities for you to take classes related to these particular interests? Or were a lot of the other archaeology classes focused on other topics? How did that work? Yeah. So I think, you know, the University of Florida at the time, I think was a really, it was really popping in terms of like African and African diasporic scholarship, right? And in that department at the time, you had Faye Harrison, um, who was this, you know, world-renowned cultural anthropologist. There was James Davidson there doing archaeological, historical archaeological work. Um, You also had a number of archaeologists who were doing work on the continent of Africa as well. So like Steve Brandt, for instance. So there was a lot of just work on that campus around Africa and the African diaspora. I was, you know, sifting through course offerings. And at the time, I was trying to find a course in anthropology because I'd taken a cultural anthropology class. And I was like, I think I like anthro. And I was trying to find a class that intersected with my desire to get a minor in African-American studies at the University of Florida and also like take a class in in anthropology. And James's class was cross-listed. And it was one of the only classes that was cross-listed that had an archaeological focus. I don't even think the classes that were taught on, you know, archaeology or on the continent of Africa were cross-listed in African-American studies at the time. Mm-hmm. So there was a way that like, that was one of the only classes that showed up. And when I took that class, like I said, I fell in love with it. And James offered a myriad of opportunities for students to get involved more with that research once you took that class. So I was so interested in that class. It was during that semester that I joined his historical archaeology laboratory and was able to start actually, you know, being in his lab, being able to analyze and catalog artifacts that were being excavated from the Kingsley Plantation. And then it was that summer that I was able to actually go down to Jacksonville, Florida and work at that site with him and several other students. So that it was it was a myriad of just like opportunities, but you know the majority of archaeology classes and the sort of entryway to archaeology more broadly, oftentimes it can be really challenging for Black people and people of color more broadly to see themselves in the scholarship in ways that sometimes don't feel exploitive, you know. So there is a way that like 
James made it feel like I can be a part of telling this really tender history around, you know, the era of enslavement, but also from a viewpoint that really focused on the ways in which people lived, you know, and like, what does it mean to look at Black life during the antebellum and postbellum era? Yeah. So, I mean, there was, it sounds like there was lots of really interesting directions that you could have gone in, just seeing what the the faculty there the work that they were doing. So what what got you interested specifically in the type of work that you then went on to pursue in, in grad school? Yeah, so mm, it, it was definitely James's class that, that situated me and my research interest in archaeology. And I even ended up, you know, applying to the University of Texas at Austin to work with Dr. Maria Franklin, because Maria was James's advisor and mentor, right? Mm-hmm. So I was, you know, the, that like that connection directly came from from him and in, in his research. And for me, like the scholarship that I do in my dissertation research and project really centered on thinking about Black women and their clothing and adornment practices post-emancipation at a site, Texas, called the Levi Jordan plantation, which is also really well known within African diaspora archaeology because it's yielded over 600,000 artifacts from a site of enslavement in the U.S. South. And the majority of the sort of research and publications that have come out of that work have pertained to the era of of enslavement at that site. And there is a rich time period post-enslavement where Black people lived and labored that uh, was a little less discussed in um, in research. So my own personal interest in Black women as a Black feminist scholar, I center Black women in everything that I do. I wanted to do a dissertation project that focused on Black women and Black women's lives in the past. And I have, an, I have my own particular interest in clothing and adornment, being an artist and being someone who makes jewelry, <laughs> thinking about the ways in which adornment and dress more broadly are a really, you know, nuanced entryway into discussing how people navigated their everyday lives in response to structural forms of oppression. And in my own research, I focus specifically on the ways in which Black women and African-Americans more broadly used sartorial practices, so dress practices, how people dress their bodies for their everyday lives to negotiate racial practices of racialization, sexual exploitation, and economic disenfranchisement that really shaped the post-emancipation era in this country for African-American people. So the dissertation project looked at that scholarship and the book project now is building off of that work, really asking, you know, what is made possible when we place Black women at the center of our analysis of the Reconstruction era and think through the ways in which they dress their bodies to sort of combat and negotiate and navigate immense forms of social change that took place during that time period. So that's a little bit around like how I came into the research and why my why my research interests lie where they do. Mm-hmm. Okay, so can you give us some examples of like what specifically that might have looked like dress wise, um, both 
you know, in that, that reconstruction period, but also like how you might apply the same lens to today, for example, to clothing or adornment, I should say. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So something that I am looking at are the ways in which Black women dress their bodies for various forms of labor that they did. So thinking about how women dress their bodies for agricultural labor, as well as how Black women dress their bodies for domestic labor as well, and thinking about how clothing was so integral to understandings of femininity that they were oftentimes conceptually left outside of, yet their dress practices, be it like fastening in your waist, for for instance, with like hook and eye fasteners and the like, still played with and navigated, you know, the desire for a particular form of femininity, especially like with the wearing of petticoats and whatnot. And then I also think about more specifically, there's this really brilliant work done by these two authors, Seton and Conrad, that look at freedmen colonies throughout Texas. And they talk about how dressing down was a practice of sartorial strategy utilized by African Americans to really navigate racial terror that sparked post-emancipation, so post-1865. And what we're seeing at the Levi Jordan Plantation is that, you know, post-emancipation, there's actually a proliferation of very plain clothing fasteners. And at the same time, there is an uptick in more costly ceramics at that particular site in the area where in, where, in, where formerly enslaved Africans um, lived and labored. So I'm trying to think through, you know, like how there is evidence that disposable income existed to buy more costly ceramics. But, you know, what does it look like to actually have a sort of higher percentage or distribution of plain clothing fasteners that might speak to the sort of practice of intentionally dressing down in terms of like trying to navigate that sort of racial climate at the time. And then there are also, you know, ways in which, you know, there are very clear indicators are, you know, what others in the field will call like sartorial splendor. So the ways in which people are dressing up as well and like who and when is that sort of strategy utilized in the African American community post-emancipation when, you know, the sort of targets of white Tara more broadly during that time period oftentimes came with the actual stealing and looting of African-Americans' personal belongings, right? So a lot of people had their homes, you know, burnt down and, and destroyed. But more often, you you had people who were just stealing clothing, stealing hmm. items of adornment, stealing these sort of everyday signifiers of Black people in a position that countered the white imaginary of them always and forever being enslaved. Mm. So there are lots of, of, of different ways to sort of play with it, but I've been doing a lot of work um, more recently with the Digital Archaeological Archive of Comparative Slavery, really you know, going through the database for like the artifactual database from the Levi Jordan Plantation with a fine tooth comb to sort of look at, you know, distributions across that site that speak to various behavioral patterns that people might have been engaging based on my particular interest in clothing and adornment. So that work is ongoing and I'm really excited to write more about it and have the book eventually come out to discuss more. Yeah, so stay tuned in 
2022 or 2023 for a black black (laughs) feminist archaeology of adornment for that book to come out in the next few years. Yeah. And we are already at our first break point, but lots more to talk about on this topic when we get back. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right. We are back. So I want to... God, I have so many questions going around in my brain. But let's go back to that second part of that question that we didn't get to before the break, which was... um, if you were like looking at today and you were thinking with this same framework, what might that look like? How would you um, think about clothing today through that same lens? Yeah. So one thing to say is that, you know, the, the book itself, it's, it's thinking about dress practices and sartorial practices more broadly. So the materiality that we have really lends itself to a very specific lens around like, clothing or what um, folks in sartorial studies would call, you know, the 3D supplements that we add to the body. But I'm also thinking about, you know, with the sort of recovery of hair combs and and hairpins and things like that, also around hygiene and hairstyling practices of grooming more broadly. And then there are other ways to talk about other sort of forms of body modifications in terms of like, you know, corsetry being found at at specific sites or even at um, some African-American sites, you have like compacts for makeup and um, milk glass bottles, creams and things like that. Right. So when I think about dress more broadly and it's in its impact in the past, but also today, I think about how a lot of work right now, specifically around the sort of hyper visibility of, of black injustice oftentimes revolves around people, Black people more specifically, being perceived as as dangerous and being perceived as a threat. And that actual perception, while it's so, while so much of it is clearly on the, on the Black body itself being perceived as threat, uh, much of it also has to do with the clothing that Black, that are on Black bodies, right? So for instance, in the, in Seton and Conrad's text, they talk a lot about how in Texas, there was a revival of sumptuary laws that were used in courtrooms in Texas post-1865 that were actually created in the colonial era, where in courts, there were people who literally had Black men, more specifically, that had their trousers ripped in courtroom settings because because there were laws around what Black people could and could not wear that were created 
during the colonial era that were used post-emancipation. But if you look at these colonial era sumptuary laws that are actually frequent throughout the Southern United States and throughout the Caribbean, it gives you a peer view into the ways in which surveilling and, and attempting to control what Black people wore was actually a central to the sort of establishment of control over Black people, the establishment of, of slavery more broadly. So there are, are, are a lot of uh, laws, specifically um, sumptuary laws that were around how Black women could or couldn't style their hair, right? And if you've read Incidents in the Life of a Slave, a Slave Girl by Linda Brandt, written under the name Harriet Jacobs, there is a clear story in there around how, as punishment, her enslaver would shave her head, right? So the ways in which hair itself has a sort of long history of being perceived as threat and the ways in which hair has been has been a site of, of particular white terror and control, right? And then today, you know, in today's society, you have the passing of the Crown Act in California, right? Which is literal legislation that articulates that Black women have the right to style their hair in braids, in locks, in twists, right? Like there's legislation that says that this is is legal, right? Which which means that in order to have that legislation, there must have been some kind of, of, of notion or thought that it wasn't, right? And the fact is, is that throughout this country, you have case study after case study after case study of Black men and women and children who are disciplined, you know, in their various sort of sites of occupation, be it young children in classroom settings, being told that they can't wear their head, hair in plaits or locks. Or more recently, I think in the last five years, it was that young man in New Jersey who, while he was at a wrestling match, had his head shaved, right? Because of his locks. So there are ways in which like hair still shows up as like a site of contention in this particular country. So I talk about, you know, at the Levi Jordan Plantation in almost every in almost every sort of domestic context, you have the fragments of rubber hair combs to know and have a conversation around hair practices and hair styling more broadly as a communal sort of practice in that space, but also the space in which socialization took place, the space in which care took place, but also the sort of legacies that you still see of that today and the sort of ways in which people are navigating particular sort of threats of harm today as well. And that's just one particular case when it comes to like hairstyling more broadly. But you can also see that if you think about clothing practices as well, Patricia Hill Collins talks about, you know, controlling images and the ways in which there are these stereotypes that come about around Black women. And so much of it is tied once again to the Black female body, but also to the clothes or the lack of clothing on those particular bodies that speak messages or towards these stereotypes of um, hyper or a or, or hyper or undersexualized in particular ways. So there are ways in which within the American imagination that clothing is so essential to the sort of racial caricatures that we have in this country. And that the sort of navigation of it is talked about as a very sort of present tense sort of way. But People and people and African Americans in this particular example and in the work that I do have been navigating this these particular threats 
throughout time. So definitely trying to have a conversation that's not ahistorical. So it's not saying that what was happening back then is happening now, but it definitely is saying that there are connective threads towards the sort of experiences that African-Americans are having today around their sartorial navigation that are directly linked to the post-emancipation era and directly linked to the antebellum era in this country. Yeah. So one thing that you were talking about there that um, I'd be interested to hear more about is you were talking about, uh, you mentioned your work in St. Croix, and I'd just be interested to hear whether you're finding similar things or different things with related to adornment in St. Croix versus, you know, Texas and Florida and other places. Yeah. So St. Croix is a really fantastic example And the work that I've been doing in St. Croix, along with several other colleagues, so, you know, doctors, Justin Donovant, Alicia Odawale, Alexander Jones, William White, um, we've been working down in St. Croix since 2017, and the project has been conceived by Justin and myself since 2016 when we were both graduate students. He was at the University of Florida, and I was at the University of Texas at Austin. And each of us have different research questions at that particular site, and my own still stem from you know my engagement with sartorial practices. Um, and this time, looking at you know the era of enslavement on St. Croix during you know, Danish occupation during that time period. So the site that we work at is the estate Little Princess, which is an 18th century Danish sugar plantation site that has been occupied, you know, up through the 1960s, right? So it has this like very long history. But I'm looking at the ways in which sumptuary laws, because we do have Danish colonial sumptuary laws that were enacted at that particular site, not only around how Black women could or couldn't style their hair, which is very present around like what sort of head wraps that they could or couldn't wear. But there is also legislation that was very specific to the kinds of materials that Black people free And then Black people who were legally free and those who were legally enslaved could or could not wear. So the ways in which the Danish government tried to dictate difference through through practices of dress, which I think, which is also theorized by a number of other scholars, speaks to the anxieties of the Danish government to establish difference within the population that was, you know, rapidly (laughs) becoming closer and closer to each other in a lot of ways, you know. But on St. Croix more specifically, unfortunately, we haven't come across a lot of artifacts of clothing and adornment at this particular site. And I should say that we still have, you know, several years of field work to go. And of course, like many of us, we haven't been able to excavate for two summers. But we have come across some, you know, bone buttons. We've come across this really beautiful carved um, stone bead that I'm very excited about. But nowhere near the sort of number of clothing and adornment artifacts that have come out of, you know, the Levi Jordan plantation. I think that site if I'm remembering off the top of my head, had over 2,000 buttons that were recovered from that site, had maybe well over like 300 beads. And these are numbers that, you know, you don't actually get. It it is an anomaly within itself, which makes it a perfect space to have these conversations because you more often get the sort of small numbers that I'm seeing come up at the estate Little Princess. But you can place that in conversation with, you know, oral histories, with documentary resources, with photographic evidence to have a more 
encompass and holistic story around dress practices and how they've shifted and changed over time. So that's what I'm doing in that space. And I'm also looking at craft production on St. Croix in relationship to the sort of the sort of creative ways that artists are incorporating this colonial past and their present day crafts at, at on, on that particular item island in regards to thinking through, you know, avenues of economic access that historically have just not been very fruitful in that space. So that's a particular that those are some of the questions and, and thoughts and themes that are coming up in that particular space at at the Estate Little Princess on St. Croix. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one method that you mentioned specifically was oral history work. And I noticed that came up a couple times um, in your CV. Could you talk a little bit? Um, I'm a cultural anthropologist, so obviously I couldn't let that one slip by without <laughs> talking about it. Um, <laughs> so could you talk a little bit about how you incorporate oral history work into the work that you've done? Yeah, absolutely. So my work as um, you know, in oral history actually started with the Samuel Proctor Oral History Program at the University of Florida, where I was a spring intern at one point. And we actually would gather oral histories from African-Americans in Gainesville, Texas, which was a really exciting project. And more broadly, I've looked at oral histories gathered around Texas. And there was an oral history project that took place in the 1990s that was looking at and talking to the descendants of enslaved laborers at the Levi Jordan Plantation that talks a bit about, you know, communal practices, craft production. It talks about dress practices. And then there are Maria Franklin's work in Texas as well that was looking at African Americans that were connected to freedmen colonies around the Austin, Texas area more specifically. And there are some oral histories um, that she's also gathered that allow us to really think about how people were dressing in the past, right? And the stories that they remember from their mothers, from their grandmothers around what they wore, why they wore it, um, and, and how those stories were transmitted. So you have like those more recent oral histories. And then I also tap into the work, Works Progress Administrative Oral Slave Narratives as well, which come, of course, with their own sort of complications and limitations in regards to like how they were collected and whom were the interviewers and how they approached various people that were formerly enslaved. And then, you know, the majority of the people that were interviewed you know, experience the era of enslavement as children or as youth. So there are lots of limitations in that regard. But that also is a very rich data source as well for these stories. And, you know, through the Library of Congress, you can download nearly all of them. And, you know, just literally through the advent of technology today, you can like type into the search engine hair, clothing, button, earring, and get, you know, these results from a number of different sources that talk about shifts and change in clothing from enslavement to emancipation that offers the possibility of really exciting conversations around the topic. Yeah, and I noticed too that one thing on the the Society of Black Archaeologists website that there's there's this oral history project and it looked like uh, you were part of the the creation of of that project as well. Yeah, absolutely. So the Society of Black Archaeologists, which was co-founded by myself and Justin Donovan, 
back in 2011, one of the central projects, or our first projects, really, um, were these this oral history project. And initially, this oral history project came up because there's a book called African-American Pioneers in Anthropology written by Harrison and Harrison that came out several, I want to say decades ago, that looks at African-American pioneers in the subfields of anthropology. And there isn't a Black archaeologist in that book. And even in the second edition that has come out, there's still not a Black archaeologist in that book. So there's, there was something that Justin and I, you know, collectively were just like, we got to write down our, our stories, you know, like we actually have to be the people that archive our existence and experience in this, in this field. So that's exactly what we started doing. Right. And we started with the people that are our elders. Right. So we started intellectual elders. So we started with Folks like Teresa Singleton, who was the first Black woman in America to get her PhD in archaeology. And other folks like Michael Blakey. We have one by Alexander Jones. We have one by Whitney Battle Baptiste as well. Really just highlighting the importance of of self-archiving practices. And with this data that's been gathered, because it is data, we're able to actually have deeper conversations around not only people's lived experiences in this discipline, but also what got them involved, what kept them here, to have a conversation about the very concrete ways that avenues of access can be broadened to bring more people of African descent into this discipline. So that oral history project has been really exciting in that way. And I think from it has really sparked all these other conversations around like access and equity in many ways. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, we're already at our second break point, but when we come back, I would like to ask you more about the Society of Black Archaeologists. Hey, we're back. So uh, let's keep talking about the Society of Black Archaeologists. So you have this oral history program portion. Tell me more. (laughs) Definitely. So the mission of the Society of Black Archaeologists really centers the histories and material cultures of global Black and African communities and archaeological research. And by providing a really strong network, um, mentorship, and educational access, the Society really works to resolve the ongoing systemic exclusion of Black and African scholars and communities from the field of archaeology. And we really aim to provide avenues of engagement and training that prepare Black and African scholars and communities to be active participants in the documentation, the excavation, preservation, and interpretation of Black and African heritage. And the projects that SBA has created around our mission and our sort of goals have been wide and far reaching, right? So one of them is like this oral history project. Early on, Justin and I were also doing a lot of conference panels and symposia, putting together people to be in conversation, not only at conferences like the Society for Historical Archaeology, but also at Black Studies conferences like the Association for the Study of African American Life and History, really centering that, you know, the theoretical foundations of African diaspora archaeology more broadly have to be interconnected 
with Black and African diasporic studies more broadly. So that was also a lot of work that we were doing early on. We also have the Estate Little Princess Archaeology Project, which is an SBA project that includes all SBA members that also is heavily centered on providing an educational training ground for undergraduates from historically Black colleges and universities through funding from the University of California's Historically Black College and University Initiative. And in partnership with archaeology in the community, we are also able to provide a one week, which, you know, in summer of 2022 will be a two week youth field school program for youth on the island of St. Croix. So folks who are between the ages of 12 and 18 to actually come down to the site with us, work alongside us and actual and gain actual archaeological theory and method in practice with us, which is really exciting work. And then Justin and I have initiated a number of sort of larger conversations with granting agencies to really think about structural inequality when it comes to funding projects by, you know, archaeologists of African descent, as well as scholarship that's on the African diaspora more broadly. And the Wintergrand Foundation and Danlin Rutherford more specifically has been such an integral part in having and in, in initiating and in, directing these conversations with a number of other granting agencies, including, you know, National Geographic and the NSF, so the the National Science Foundation as well. So there are real conversations that are happening. And in addition to that, you know, SBA is also in partnership with Cornell University and Sapiens and Winogrand and the archaeological and the the Indigenous Archaeology Collective as well that is pulling together a number of archaeology centers around the country to have a conversation about what kind of work around equity can be accomplished at a, at a myriad of different levels through our academic institutions. We've also had representatives of the SBA attend strategic meetings for a number of different larger organizations like, you know, the Society for historical archaeology, we have we've had a number of conversations with folks at the SAAs at AI at AIA. So there are a lot of a lot of initiatives that are on the ground running and and that are rippling out from not only the work that we've done, but the work that our indigenous co-conspirators have long, long had foundations and roots in. So it's been really exciting to to see all the sort of sprouting ways in which this this work has grown rather sort of rhizomorphically, you know. Yeah. Um, and so I do want to throw out there that uh, both the Society of Black Archaeologists and Archaeology in the Community, which you mentioned, accept donations just in case anyone has that on their mind. Yeah. Um, and speaking of... of <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, speaking of uh, places, organizations that accept donations, diving with a purpose. Let's let's talk about that. Yeah, so I absolutely love diving with a purpose. I would not have been in contact with diving with a purpose had it not been for the Society of Black Archaeologists and. Diving with a Purpose is another nonprofit organization dedicated to oceanic conservation and preservation of submerged heritage resources with a special interest on sites pertaining to the African diaspora. And I have been, I've had the good fortune of working with Diving with a Purpose since 2000. 
16 and I took their first training session in 2017 and they offer trainings in maritime archaeology survey methods and partnership with international organizations like the National Park Service, NOAA, and the Slave Rex Project to really train folks who don't have formal training in archaeology, so people who don't have like an MA or a PhD, to be archaeological advocates, right? In this, in this work. And they also have a really beautiful and fruitful coral reef restoration program called DWP Cares that's looking at, you know, environmental preservation and conservation efforts in our ocean to really bring about a global understanding of environmental stewardship of our waters, right? So it's a really fantastic organization that I think is changing the discipline of maritime archaeology from the outside, really providing spaces of educational access for archaeologists of African descent to actually do work in this field in ways that um, ordinarily have been not available to us. So my work in maritime archaeology is only made possible through Diving with a Purpose and the sort of collaborations that they have with the Slave Rex Project, with NOAA, with NPS, and a number of other folks, I'm sure, new archaeologists that are doing work underwater would have to say the same as well. And like, you know, the fantastic work that Justin Donovan is doing, the fantastic work that Gabrielle Miller is doing, Sydney Pickens, another person who also all of us came about through this collaboration with DWP and these other organizations. So it's just been a really amazing experience. And in October of 2019, DWP invited me to be on their board. And I've been a board member ever since, really working um, not only with their with their maritime archaeology training program, but also, you know, their youth training program as well, which provides this this training through a partnership with the National Park Service that trains students, I want to say it's like 15 to 23, to do this work underwater in, in Key Biscayne, which is really, really exciting. So yeah, Diving with a Purpose is a, has a special place in my heart and has really opened me up to all the histories that are held in our waters. And especially, you know, being of African descent, being the descendant of enslaved Africans in this country, it matters to be able to do this work in the Atlantic more specifically. So a lot of the sort of new work post, you know, the estate little princess is focusing on the Atlantic and thinking about monumentality in the Atlantic. Yeah. So could you talk a little bit more, first of all, just about the, the Slave Rex project and, and what that is and just a little more background there? Yeah, so I'm not affiliated with the Slave Rex project, but the Slave Rex project is in collaboration with Diving with a Purpose, or Diving with a Purpose, rather, I should say, is in collaboration with the Slave Rex Project. But anyways, I am not affiliated with the with the Slave Rex Project, but the Slave Rex Project is an international organization that's really hosted by the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture and George Washington University and has partnerships with museums throughout, you know, the continent of Africa, Ezekiel Museums of South Africa, as well as, you know, a really fruitful partnership in Senegal. So there are ways that that particular organization has been doing work globally around the transatlantic slave trade and in collaboration with DWP has really been able to, 
do a lot of training of local community members to be cultural stewards of their submerged heritage resources. So DWP uh, members, specifically like the really beautiful work of Kamal Siddiqui and Jay Hegler, have been able to go to the theaters that SWP, so the Slave Rex Project, works in and really help with training local folks to dive in their waters and to care for their submerged heritage resources, which is really really exciting work. And I'm really excited because that collaboration is also what made possible the work that I do alongside Justin on St. Croix as well. Like we initially went down there with representatives from the Slave Rex Project and Diving with the Purpose to look for a site to do both maritime and terrestrial archaeology on the island. And we've been able to get the terrestrial sites up and running and we're focusing now on what it would look like to build a maritime project in the on St. Croix or in the U.S. Virgin Islands more broadly. So it's really exciting. It's really exciting work. And I think so much is possible in that space. But like I said, the Slave Rex Project is one of many collaborators that DWP is in conversation with, including, you know, the National Park Service and NOAA. Yeah. So, okay. We're, we're running out of time, but I have two questions in mind that I think would be good to end with. The first one is what, where would you like to see the field go? What, how, what kind of changes would you like to see in the field of archeology? span Yeah. So when I think about, when I think about the future sort of paradigm of our field, I really want to, you know, flip it on its head. So right now you have a lot of archaeologists who go into communities and we'll have our own projects and our own ideas and our own research questions. And maybe we're doing this in collaboration. Like there are all these ways in which the sort of centrality of our discipline right now doesn't actually lie in the hands of the communities that are deeply impacted by this work. And in my wildest dreams, it's those communities that are actually at the center of the scholarship. And they are the ones that receive, that they are the ones that actually hire us, right, to do this work. And our sort of jobs as archaeologists are in service to those communities and not to our institutions or these granting (laughs) agencies, right? So the questions are from community members the outcomes of the research, how that research is shared and disseminated are centered on and created by community. And we work in partnership with with them. So it's a, it feels like a very different paradigm than what we currently than what we currently sort of are in practice with. But that is that is the way in which I would love to see this this field turn towards. So My next question was, I think now maybe overlapping quite a bit with that last one. (laughs) Um, So I'm trying to think of of maybe how to reframe a little bit. But basically, I want to ask you, like, if you have your soapbox, like, what are what is the one thing that you're saying from your soapbox? Yeah. (laughs) The one thing I'm saying from my soapbox is that the work that we do And maybe, and I should say specifically that my soapbox is facing an audience of archaeologists, right? (laughs) So I'm on my soapbox. I'm facing an audience of archaeologists. 
and I'm yelling out to the archaeologists, this work that we do about the past matters and means something in the present and it shapes how we will all live and experience life in the future. Because I feel like the ways in which we're able to engage the past as a practice that deeply impacts how we currently live pulls it from from just like being dusty history, you know? Like I think there's a way that in our field we have to have an understanding that the work that we do is political, that we have to have an understanding that it is impactful, it impacts people today, and that the histories that we are creating shape the contours of our life in the future. And I feel like if we're able to hold that at our center, then we're able to move with greater intention when it comes to the kinds of research questions that we ask, but also the paradigms that we choose to engage or not to engage when it comes to community-centered and collaborative research. Okay, I can't help myself. One more question. So you're, <laughs> you're still on that soapbox, okay? And you're thinking about representation and like how enslavement's been represented, how reconstruction's been represented today, you know, all of Black archaeology, basically, the way that it's presented. What's your soapbox for, um, like, how you would change that story? Yeah, I think the soapbox for, like, how I would change that story or the reframe of that story, a lot of the work that I do is so deeply centered on Black life, right? really thinking about the ways in which Black people have lived through tremendous harm, through tremendous violence. And archaeology is essential in making that tangible. I feel like if I'm on the soapbox right now, like talking about this history and this past, I think now I'm no longer on the soapbox yelling at just archaeologists. I think I'm on the soapbox yelling at like the U.S., and, you know, we're in this time period where people are having real conversations about literally revisioning our history in such a way that erases not only like, you know, the harms of enslavement, but also the harms of indigenous genocide. You know, there are just ways in which there are concrete efforts to lie to our youth, right? So I feel like what archaeology must do in the act of like seeping in and wading in the political nature of this work is make tangible those histories so that they cannot be ignored. And the way that we do that is with the material itself, right? And I've said this before in other spaces that like the work that DWP, the Slave Rex Project right now is doing, unearthing the histories of enslavement through the vessel itself makes tangible that history and palpable that history in ways that we have not experienced before. It means something to be able to see an actual hull of a ship where enslaved Africans were held. It means something to go into the African-American History and Culture Museum in Washington, D.C. and actually see the shackles that once were wrapped around an adult and then small enough to wrap around child's ankles, right? Like that makes tangible our history in ways that can't be ignored, even as there are people who are trying desperately to ignore it. 
right? So like that is the kind of work that we must do as archaeologists. And you see that happening even when you think about the work that's taking place right now in Tulsa, Oklahoma, right? Looking at the Tulsa race massacre that took place there. You see that happening throughout these sites of mass burial that are being unearthed in Canada in relationship to indigenous violence and genocide, right? There are ways that like when archaeologists do this kind of work and scholarship, it makes it so that you can't ignore it. And there are so many people in American society right now who would rather not face the reality of what this of, of what our history is in this country. But the only way in which we build a country worth standing on is by confronting those wounds, you know? So it's like that that is the actual soapbox message is that we have the materiality to hold truths into the light. And we have to do that work. We must. It is imperative in this country that we do that work. Yeah, absolutely. And we're at the end, but I want to encourage everyone to check out the show notes because there's lots more links and um, resources to check out if you want to learn more about any of these topics that we discussed today. And again, I want to put in a plug to everyone to donate again to Diving with a Purpose, Society of Black Archaeologists, Archaeology in the Community. They're great organizations, so definitely worth supporting. And also to say thank you again for coming on. Yeah, thank you so much, Jessica. It's been a really fantastic conversation. Yes. Excited to share it. Thanks for listening to the Heritage Voices podcast. You can find show notes at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash heritagevoices. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Play Music Store. Also, please share with your friends or write us a review. Sharing and reviewing helps more people find the show and gets the perspectives of Heritage Voices' amazing guests out there into the world. Don't we just need more of that in anthropology and land management? If you have any more questions, comments, or show suggestions, please reach out to me at jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org If you'd like to volunteer to be on the show as a guest or even a co-host, reach out to me as well, Jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org You can also follow more of what I'm doing on Facebook at Living Heritage Anthropology and the nonprofit Living Heritage Research Council or on Twitter at Living Heritage A. As always, huge thank you to Lyle Balenqua and Jason Nez for their collaboration on our incredible logo. So if you like Heritage Voices, I definitely recommend listening to season four of Sapiens, a podcast for everything human. In this season, hosted by Yoli Nagandali and Dr. Ora Merrick Martinez, they interview Black and Indigenous archaeologists to discover our shared histories. Join experts like Dr. Fluellen excavating free Black communities on the island of St. Croix as they advocate for a different kind of archaeology, find resilience and innovation, in the evolution of quote-unquote slave cuisine in Caribbean markets and journey with ancestral historians reclaiming the unmarked graves of First Nation peoples. Subscribe now wherever you're listening to the show. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Max Lander. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. 
Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.